0: Meet the 2022 Vilcek Foundation Prize winners, immigrant choreographers and dancers who have advanced culture in the United States. Brazilian-born tap artist Leonardo Sandoval incorporates Afro-Brazilian rhythms into American tap dance. Watch a short video about Leonardo's immigration story and creative practice at Vilcek, V-I-L-C-E-K.org. The Ruth Page School of Dance at the Ruth Page Center for the Arts provides the highest level of training to young dancers and professionals. Audition now for the school's International Dance Experience, a four-week summer intensive featuring teaching artists from all over the world. For more information, visit ruthpage.org. Friends and welcome to the Dance Edit podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer, and I'm Amy Brandt. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we're going to continue our pattern of doing not one but two headline rundowns. Rundown one will address the top dance stories that are not connected to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then rundown two will get into the dance world news that is related to the Ukraine crisis. So two headline rundowns, then we'll move on to our longer discussion segments, two of them this week. The 1st we'll build on our Ukraine-related headlines by looking at the history of dance's use in international diplomacy, the roles that dancers and dance companies have played in East-West relations over the years in particular. And then the second discussion segment, will move away from the war and look at a perennially important topic that Point Magazine just did a great story about, that's dancewear size inclusivity problem, and why it's so crucial that dancewear brands offer sizes for all kinds of bodies. A lot of substance to this episode, so let's get right into our first dance headline rundown, which reminder, this first one is all of our non-Ukraine related news.
1: Broadway performer Sharon Lynn died unexpectedly this month. Tributes to Lynn, who was a cast member of The Lion King on Broadway and also danced on film and for television, have been pouring in on social media and on her Instagram page. She also authored a book, Soul Healing, a guided journal for Black women. Very, very sad.
0: Yeah, so very tragic. Um, we've linked The Lion King Show's official tribute in the show notes, which is very touching former New York City ballet principal Lauren Levitt has been named Paul Taylor Dance Company's first resident choreographer. So a ballerina taking up residence at a modern dance institution, Mm -hmm. kind of a big deal. Um, And her first work for the company, Pentimento, is actually just about to premiere at New York City Center. So very soon we'll have a better sense of the dynamic between Lauren and the company's dancers, which I'm very
1: curious to see in action. Yeah. I was so surprised to hear that news, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, had she ever worked with the company before? Do you know? I don't think so. I believe this is her first
0: piece for them. Although, you know, in some ways it makes a certain degree of sense. I feel like they both have Lauren as a dancer and then the Paul Taylor dancers have a similar openness. And mm-hmm. that seems to apply to Lauren's way of working as a choreographer too. So mm-hmm. very interesting.
1: Wisconsin's Madison Ballet has named New York City-based choreographer Jamalik as its new artistic director. He is currently director of Ballet Boy Productions, a company he founded in New York, and he recently created work for Charlotte Ballet and Festival Ballet Providence. So this is um, some nice wind in his sails, I would say. Yeah,
0: big congrats.
1: Back in 2020, he wrote a powerful essay for dance magazine called My Life as an Invisible Black Choreographer, where he Mm -hmm. talked about the implicit bias he faces in the classical dance landscape. So this is really great news for him, and I'm excited to see where he takes the company. Yeah, same. And we'll link to that essay in the show notes too.
0: NBC's new dance reality show, Dancing with Myself, has announced and then re-announced its group of celebrity judges and dance creators. So Shakira has been on board the show since it was first announced a few months ago. But last week, NBC said that Shaquille O'Neal and Liza Koshy would be joining her. Then a few days later, it said that Nick Jonas would replace Shaq after some technical difficulties changed the production schedule. And as a quick refresher, because there are a lot of new dance TV shows happening, Dancing with Myself is the one where contestants learn dance routines while isolated in their own pods. Um, And notably, the routines will not just be judged by these celebrities, but actually choreographed by them, which I did not realize was part of the deal when I first heard about the show. It's
1: fascinating to me. Disney has issued an apology after a Texas high school group performed a racist dance routine during a parade at Walt Disney World in Florida. On March 15th, the Port Neches Grove High School drill team called the Indianettes appeared to do several stereotypical Native American poses, including a war whoop and uh, references to scalping. Kind of crazy to me that this is what they brought to a theme park. Oh my gosh. Um, but Disney says that the dance did not match the team's audition tape.
0: It's almost inconceivable that that type of performance is seen as acceptable anywhere. Yeah. And we're ending this first headline rundown with an obituary for Nina Novak, the Polish ballerina who was a leading dancer with the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo in the 1940s and 50s. She later helped bring
1: classical ballet to Venezuela, which, what a life. I know, I have a couple of friends who posted very touching tributes to her on their social media, friends friends of mine from Venezuela, so I know she had a huge influence there.
0: Yeah. Okay, so that concludes the first headline rundown. Now it's on to the dance
1: news that is connected to Ukraine. Artem Dotsyshine, a former soloist with the Ukrainian National Ballet, has died in a Kiev hospital three weeks after sustaining injuries from a shelling attack by Russian forces. He was 43 years old, and it's just a chilling example of how close this war is to the dance community. Yeah, that
0: feels utterly senseless. So tragic. Here is some blessedly more hopeful news, Kiev City Ballet, the Ukrainian company that was on tour in France when war broke out, will be touring North America in late 2022 and early 2023. So this tour is happening in partnership with the arts management firm Rhizome Consulting. We don't know much more about it yet. But Amy, you were saying this
1: feels like Ballet Rouge during World War II. Totally. I know. Like forced from their homeland. So let's tour. Just tour. I'm excited to see them. I hope they come to the New York City area. Yes, please. Ukrainians are mourning the loss of both life and cultural heritage as Russian bombs damage the country's theaters, and they are fortifying Odessa's beloved opera house to protect it from a similar fate. According to the Washington Post, the barricades to the theater, which is Ukraine's oldest opera house, start three blocks away. Um, It has enormous cultural significance there, so it's no wonder why they are taking such great care to protect it. Other theaters in Mariupol and Kharkiv have been destroyed. so. I think a lot of us consider
0: theaters like metaphorical safe places. Mm -hmm. Here they're literally intended to be safe havens and that illusion is so fragile and and here has actually been shattered. Makes makes me a little teary. I know. Max Schmerkowski, the Ukraine-born Dancing with the Stars alum who documented his recent escape from Kiev on Instagram, has returned to Poland to help with humanitarian efforts. So Max is working on the ground in Poland to organize and distribute aid. And he and his family, including his brother Val, who's also been on Dancing with the Stars, have started a charitable organization called Baranova 27, named for their former address in Odessa, for those looking to contribute to their relief work in Ukraine. And we've got that link in the show
1: notes for you. Mikhail Grishnikov told The Guardian that Russian artists should not have to pay the price of Putin's invasion. He says, quote, an open exchange in the arts is always a good thing. I don't think it's right to put the weight of a country's political decisions on the backs of artists or athletes who may have vulnerable family members in their home country. For people in those exposed positions, neutrality is a powerful statement, unquote. Um, He also voiced concern for Russia's young generation of artists who he fears will be locked out and left behind as the world um, continues to sanction Russian culture. And he's joined a network of other artists who are critical of the Kremlin. Uh, They've set up a GoFundMe page called True Russia to help spread better understanding of Russian culture and to raise money for refugees. However, the uh, choreographer Alexei Ratmansky, who is both Russian and Ukrainian, responded to Burshnikov's quotes on social media. He wanted to make sure to praise Bereshnikov's support of Ukraine, but he disagreed that artists shouldn't have some responsibility or shouldn't take a stand um, and pointed to several high-profile dance figures in Russia who have prominently supported Putin's annexation of Crimea. For example, he also mentioned that many celebrities serve in the state Duma. um, What he said is, quote, it is precisely because of the support of the most visible figures of Russian culture that Putin gained his unlimited power and now is using it against humanity in this bloody war. So kind of a little back and forth by two kind of huge uh, dance figures.
0: Yeah, who are also friends and mutual admirers. Oh, It's so complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, So actually, that, that ends our double headline rundown, but our first discussion segment today relates pretty directly to that debate happening between Brishnikov and Ratmansky about what role dance organizations and dancers should play in this kind of politically charged scenario. So today, as prompted by a recent article in The Guardian, we'd like to talk about the roles that they have played in these kinds of scenarios in the past. Um, and it's not that this Guardian story offers any clear Answers, but it does provide some helpful context. So the piece looks specifically at how dance has been both a diplomatic tool and a political football in the relationship between Russia, or going back in time, the Soviet Union, and the West, particularly Europe and the United States.
1: Yeah, it's a great article by Lindsay Winship. She she starts off with TV Rain, the independent Russian television channel that. Where they all signed off in protest and played Swan Lake. And that was a direct reference Mm -hmm. to um, the 90s when there was a coup against Gorbachev and the Russian state media just played the ballet Swan Lake on a loop over and over again to kind of, you know, to make sure that the Russian people didn't know what was happening. Kind of a statement on censorship there. Yeah. I,
0: I love the cultural historian, Simon Morrison, calling that like the ultimate troll. Mm-hmm. Such a good troll. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> That's exactly
1: it. That's a very clever move there. And then she she kind of goes back to like the Cold War tours, which I was fascinating. I just find that whole part of history so, so fascinating that, yeah. you know, in the 1959 and 1960 that the US and Russia established this cultural exchange between two of our american dance companies american ballet theater and new york city ballet and the bolshoi and kind of you know they toured each other's countries and then when new york city ballet and balanchine were over in russia and the bolshoi was in the u.s at the same exact time the cuban missile crisis was going on mm-hmm. and all of the fears that were happening that well, the dancers get stuck in these other countries and and everything um Saul Hurok said, quote, as long as they keep dancing and the diplomats keep talking, we'll have no war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think actually, he helped on both of those tours. So he was oh, had sort of an interesting okay, perspective as the that. impresario
0: in the in the middle of it all. Yeah. Um, I also thought it was interesting to, they, the story talked about audience reactions to those performances, mm-hmm. about yeah. how they were, even with the Soviet government sort of discouraging enthusiastic responses, the audiences did get increasingly enthusiastic. And you know, as soon as the Cuban Missile Crisis was resolved, JFK was in the audience at the Bolshoi Ballet clapping louder than right. anybody else. Like the idea that these performances really did aid cultural understanding by sort of humanizing the enemy. That's a that's a real impact.
1: Yeah, it's like on the other end of the spectrum. Like that's, you know, for so many U.S. presidents who've gone to Russia, that's like kind of the first thing they do is like take them to the Bolshoi. Mm-hmm could see that as a gesture of like, here is our cultural superiority and or a gesture of friendship, uh, you know, like, but either way, it's there's definitely some political stuff going on there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's all tied up in this fact that ballet in particular, holds this revered place in Russian culture and society, which we don't really need to tell any of the listeners mm-hmm. of this podcast, but Russian ballets and companies themselves have all, often been shaped by political ideology mm-hmm. with, you know, the most famous examples of that being like the big Soviet era Gregorovich ballets, Spartacus and Ivan the Terrible, pretty bald allegories for Soviet power. So, you know, when Westerners think of Russia, they often think of ballet, it's, it's that mm-hmm. tied to the national identity deliberately.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and also on these these Western tours saw the defections of Russian artists like Nureyev and Makarova, Brushnikov, and it's not the same as a defection, but you can kind of see that here with Olga Smirnova's recent departure from, from the Bolshoi to join Dutch national ballet. Um, You know, she was able to, to choose and to do that on her own, but who knows the kind of pressure she was under, you know, based on the, public statement against the war that she made but um and that that is kind of one sort of depressing thing to think about is that during my childhood you know with the ussr and like russia was very sequestered off you you know and with that all opening up and things being shared again and Mm -hmm. and opening up and to see that potentially closing off is very sad to me
0: yeah yeah it does seem like some big steps backward very rapidly Mm -hmm. so clearly this is all incredibly complicated as we started out this segment saying but given all this history it is I guess pretty difficult to argue that anyone can look at ballet as something totally independent of politics it never has been it probably never will be yeah Um, we've got the link to that full Guardian piece by Lindsay Winship in the show notes it really is excellent I hope you can take a look Okay, so finally today, we're changing tack. We're going to discuss a story that Point Magazine recently published about size-inclusive dancewear, um, which is one of those topics that dancers are perpetually talking about but is almost never reported on. So kudos to you and the Point team, Amy, for for going there. Um, It's already difficult for dancers with larger bodies to just be in the dance world, particularly the ballet world. And for a long time, it's been incredibly challenging for anyone bigger than a leotard size large, which by the way, is much smaller than a street clothing size large to find dancewear that actually fits them. That is now beginning to change. And the story looked at where and how that change is happening and why it's important and the challenges that remain.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's hard to feel like you belong. It's art, you know, when you can't find appropriate dancewear to wear to class, you know, if it's not available to you, or if the one the one thing you can find is a 100% nylon, high neck, high back, long sleeve leotard, you know, at the Halloween store. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's hard. And I, you know, now I'm taking adult recreational ballet classes, um, now that I'm re- long retired and all of that. And a lot of the women I take class with are postmenopausal, or they may have curvaceous bodies. And um, very few of them, I have to say, are wearing traditional dancewear. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it is something to talk about and to think about, you know, um, because I do think there is some element where that's just hard to find or not available to them. You know, there's also the logistical challenges. I mean, dancewear companies are niche industries. And it's, you know, if there's a very small market, it's very hard for them to. Um, there's a supply and demand issue there, you know,
0: I think um was it Colleen Warner, the, the dancer and therapist Colleen Warner was saying in the story that like the largest size most brands ever stock consistently is 3X. But of course, there are dancers who need larger than 3X. So true size inclusivity usually means a lot of customization, which is, mm-hmm. as you said, expensive and also really hard for smaller dancewear manufacturers to handle.
1: Yeah. But interestingly, a lot of these, the the brands that the the three dancers that are interviewed in the piece talk about are, are very small Brands that do a lot of customization as part of their business, like, you know, where you can mix and match colors and fabrics and all of that. You know, so it is kind of interesting how that works. Smaller companies where
0: customization is built into the entire business model, mm-hmm. like everybody ordering a leotard is customizing something.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that, that the, the dancers bring up, too, is, is about, you know, it's not just about the size. It's also about fashion and functionality and how, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not the same to have the same leotard. Like, sometimes the straps need to be thicker, or there needs to be more bus support. Mm-hmm. But they also need to look good. And the dancer needs to feel pretty in it. You know, I mean, everybody mm-hmm. wants to feel good. And their leotard wants to know that they have options. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if this grows more, you know, as the dance industry continues to become more inclusive, and dancers are using their voices more on social media. And and mm-hmm. we have influencers like Colleen Werner who are kind of taking the lead.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, Amy, because there has been some sort of incremental change, especially recently in this area, what what you think the driving forces behind that are. So, I mean, the, the voice that dancers have on social media, for sure.
1: Yeah, I do think that has a large part to do with it. I also think there's some openness on the dancewear industry. I mean, I remember the first time I had learned about Colleen was through Gaynor Minden because she applied to be a Gainer girl and they gave her that opportunity. And I think it's just grown from there. I think she's now also working with like discount dance supply and, you know, and then it builds. Another dancer in the story, Julia Del Bianco uh, has a similar platform in her native Brazil. You know, I think she is working with a, a dance where, company uh, where she's featured frequently on their Instagram page and and she has her own Instagram page and following so you know I think that's how it begins a lot of times mm-hmm. yeah
0: I think the, the key quote from this story is the advice that Colleen had for dancers who can't find dance in their size um, quote it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you as a dancer it means there's something wrong with the system end quote Mm -hmm. But the system is starting to change. There are signs of progress, and hopefully that continues. We've got the link to the whole point story, of course, in the show notes. You can read it. It also includes some recommendations of brands that do make fashionable dancewear for larger dancers. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com.